0: I'm I'm not going to apologize for making you laugh so hard you had to like pull away from the mic because <laughs> that <laughs> Don't seems apologize. silly. Yeah, exactly. I just read a poem about why I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Um, I'm sorry for taking so long to finish breakfast. It was stupid of me to try that trick at the potatoes. I shouldn't have done that. No, I'm sorry for apologizing. I couldn't have predicted how much time it'd take. I don't want you to feel like you always have to reassure me when something goes wrong. No, no I'm sorry for apologizing. For apologizing. This really is just me running in circles, chasing myself with a whip and unkind words over and over until... <laughs> Actually, I'm sorry for using sorry as a form of punctuation, dashed liberally into these empty, meandering tangents that I let spill from my lips to fill this silence, but this room can't be silent. Silence means that I'm not talking, which means this must be my fault, so if this is my fault, I have to say I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry I asked for tea. I didn't actually want any, I just wanted to stop apologizing, though I did suck it down like a mosquito at the skin. When I asked for it, I didn't want it, so I'm sorry for not needing it in the first place. I'm sorry by how sad you are, by how much I apologize. You've never made me feel unsafe. You've ever made me feel afraid. I'm, I'm just afraid that you'll resent my company should I seem selfish, boorish, unthoughtful in a way that demands apology. But more than that, I don't want you to find out that literally everything that has ever gone wrong in the world, all the deep and personal disappointments, all the man-made disasters that have ever occurred, all the waste of potential I've ever had to ever fix anything that ever matters, all of it is literally my fault. <sighs> I'm sorry for the Hindenburg disaster. I must have time-traveled back to New Jersey, then left a lit sparkler and a bundle of Tannerite right on top of the engine. That totally wasn't thinking. Should have kept an eye on that. I'm sorry for climate change. I keep forgetting to bring my metal straw. My house is full of plastic, and I definitely choked a turtle to death with a six-pack ring. I'm so sorry about that. I'm especially sorry my dad got addicted to crack. Like, I was such an awful kid. I was just too needy. I kept asking him to come see me, and birthdays and Christmases are stressful enough. Sometimes you just need something stronger to take the edge off. I'm... I'm sorry my parents got divorced. I'm sorry my mom probably has PTSD. I'm so sorry that my brother believes that Joe Rogan is the smartest man alive, and I can't convince him otherwise. I'm sorry, oh God, I'm sorry for talking about my family behind their back. I'm really sorry for taking up air. I... Okay, I can't fix that, but I'm sorry I can't. I'm... I'm sorry that when my fleshy, soft, and new-to-this-realm soul crawls out of its shell of dissociation, it can't help but freeze and stop every breath I could have taken fast in my chest, holding it down with white knuckles, hoping that the shock of it passes somehow. And more than that, I'm sorry for apologizing for shit that doesn't actually matter when I know it fucking doesn't. So I can avoid apologizing for the shit that does for lying to the people I love, for playing games with their hearts, for making them feel worthless and unwanted, for putting them in a position where they feel like they have to soothe my fragile, attention-starved ego because otherwise I just won't stop apologizing for potatoes and zeppelins and breathing. And so this is the end of apologies. Breakfast is 20 minutes late, it's burnt and raw, and don't you dare let me pry out a soft it's okay from you that won't make any of us feel better. This can just be fine. It's fine. I'd like to imagine that listeners will actually think I'm apologizing to you for like burning breakfast (laughs) until it actually becomes apparent that it's a poem.
1: Well, I'm sorry for offering you tea because apparently you didn't (laughs) really want it.
0: (laughs) It just seemed like too good to not pass that up and make it feel genuine. (laughs) This next one is called mental masochism. I I don't want to put out a trigger warning, but in the same breath, like, it, I don't know. This is sort of my uh, experience with having OCD, so. Um, I used to think that the back of my skull was a window to every thought in my head, and that's why the classmates who sat behind me didn't seem to like me, or that all of my dead family members had a clear bird's eye view to my entire life from up in heaven. Every thought in my head and every waking moment of my life, even the ones I was changing clothes or trying to cheat on tests. And eventually this metastasized like a cancer into paranoia, that everyone could not only hear every thought in my head, but that they were bitching about my greatest flaws behind my back, Congregations of secret criticism followed me everywhere I went. It was totally normal to assume everyone hated me and then curate my character around preemptively soothing their distaste. It was totally normal to jiggle the door handle five times or a rapist would come into my house. It was totally normal to check my tires for blood for fear I might've run someone over and not realized it. When I was 27, I told these secrets to my therapist who wrote them down as evidence that I had symptoms of OCD in childhood and told me that this is not who I am. She told me that this never-ending fear, this need to be better than perfect, that the impulse to hide until I'm worthy of respect and quietly resent those who accept me without struggle or expectation is like a stain that can be washed out. Not even a scar that I have to tolerate, but a mistake that can be undone, a mental illness that comes out with an OxyClean pre-soak and love. But that feels like a lie, because when you weave a tapestry, the strands are all dependent on each other. You can't unmake a life that has already been so molded by behavioral straitjackets and playing nice. I can't even imagine the moment where I can finally breathe. The threads of unnecessary suffering through every inch of my life make me wonder if I ever learned how to breathe at all. With every therapy, homework assignment, and every fidget toy I have to whip out to stop myself from nervously ripping all of my hair out, I crave a pain that has always kept me in place. That makes me tighten up. That makes my eyes go wide. That makes my cheeks sting with anticipation. Maybe I want to cry. Maybe I consent to being miserable. But consent means being informed of what you can gain or lose to the agreement. And with every shock of clarity of what I have lost in these years, I mourn what I didn't realize I had missed. Mental illness is like getting fucked for years and not knowing what the word no is. And with every day my consent becomes more informed, I wonder if at the end of all this personal work, will I feel like I was worth it? Or will I wish I could have stayed blind to how much of my pain was self-inflicted? This one doesn't have a title. It just kind of came out of nowhere. It is Thursday and my new coworkers are getting worried about me. I have not slept in three days, and I've actually literally just growled at someone. Everyone's eyebrows shoot up at the sound. They ask, Lottie, are you okay? Like they're trying to soothe an angry alligator, and yes. In the context of this job, I am okay. There is nothing personally, spiritually upsetting about my workplace. It is what is outside of it that is deeply wrong. My job title says IT specialist. My clothes and tits seem to say HR. My stress sweat says I am a hot, wet bag of weed. And all of my thoughts and all of my feelings say and I'm not going to scream into the mic like I usually do because I respect you and your neighbors. I can't fucking believe you. I never knew hate before this moment, you smug, belittling piece of shit. You know exactly what you've done and I am reduced to a wild animal with the truth caged in my chest. I spent all night pacing Snarling in the mirror, grinding my teeth, down to nubs, frantically trying to tell myself it doesn't even matter anymore. Sleep matters more than you ever will. Telling whichever part of my brain wants me to sleep that I just choke on a gun. I am concocting ways to make all of this rage come out as a joke. Jokes like, I hope I get a stomach ulcer just so I can puke blood all over you and make people see how red your hands are. Everyone around me is clueless, thinking I'm... Delusional, insane. They don't know what it feels like to see your face and feel righteous fury like alcohol in my veins. And as it turns out, emotional regulation craps out when everything else fails. Things like sleep, therapy, support, organs. And I scare more people than myself when I feel failure. Everything feels out of control, and I become an uncontrollable wildfire. My cheeks are so pink trying to steal sleep in the backseat of this overheating car. How could this have happened? How many times do I just have to be powerless in my life? I just want to drive down to the only other place that feels like home without being home, screaming until the sides of my ribs hurt the entire 27 miles. I want to be hugged through the haze of armpit stink and accept how embarrassing this will be but not enough to stop sharing that moment for as long as it takes to feel okay again, even if that single hug becomes 12 hours of sleep in safe arms. I never understood how I was an Aries, besides being slightly argumentative on Discord, or speaking with conviction at open mics, or that time I headbutted my dad during an argument and threw out one of his spinal discs. Eight-year-old me was kind of on the nose with that one. I always thought of myself as meek, weepy, mousy, too conflict-avoidant to live, but when everything fell apart, all I felt was fire. I was as stubborn as I thought I wasn't. But when peace finally came, when the panic fell away, that's how I knew what I wanted my future to be. A candle in the dark warm against this cold world undisturbed by wildfires. This one is called Soul Surveillance State. I'm not good with vulnerability. It's. So easy to lapse into hiding and refuse to acknowledge what I'm thinking, to shield my heart from sight, even when my only witness is just a blank page, even when I am just watching me, just me, observing me, a detached eye scrutinizing as if I were a stranger, anticipating the eyes that will judge me and I, in all of my anxieties, twisting guts and shortened breaths, stare back at that panopticon of the all-seeing imaginary audience, and God, damn it, I flinch again. This is the sole surveillance state I put myself through every day, as if I could escape our country's surveillance state by replicating it in my soul, so that its judgments become second nature to predict and avoid, as if keeping hatred as an advisor in the back of my head will do good for those that I love, those who still wait for me to come down from castle walls made of soap boxes, the kind I stand upon here on this stage, as someone films me and takes my image like an apple from a tree to their own little stand on the corner, My life goes to market in the context of a stranger's gallery, curated and categorized for later, because I exist, and so I am to be enjoyed. Whether it is to my face, in the streets, or from a screen, I exist, and so I have to be enjoyed. It's bitter, of course, but sometimes you eat something that doesn't want you back, or you don't treat it properly before you make it your meal, not knowing that there are consequences to just gobbling up whatever's lying around. And I used to worry about that being offensive to someone's palate, I thought often about what it would cost me to not be ready to enjoy for everyone at a moment's notice. But what do I really lose by not prioritizing that? A quick compliment from someone I'll never see again? An Instagram follow? A text that will never come? A ripple of rejection? And for recognizing what parts of me were not fit for others, with a tight solar plexus and shaking hands, I buried the ugly parts of me under the compost of other people's respectable opinions. And so I got nothing but several strangers occasionally giving this good little girl a fucking cookie. But what a waste. What a shame to be consumed. What oppression to feel all the world's eyes upon you and leap to buff the edges of your life before you could understand its greatness. What sorrow to make yourself enviable before you could ever have been understood. For the more one's life becomes a product, the more one is separated from their life. I am hard to swallow, Rough edges of my self-esteem eroded down sharp to cut the tongues of those who would taste me thoughtlessly. But in the presence of softened eyes, I promise I may melt for your patient mouth. This is the last one I have for you today. It's called Dalds. Little kids remake dolls in their image. Stripped bodies, shorn hair, popped bald joint arms and missing eyes, all perfect in our image. I pop the head off of my favorite doll and place it on the body of the doll that all of my friends like. Now my doll is the one everyone wants to play with. Now she's the favorite, but she's too changed now. Not my favorite anymore. I crane over the table, agonizing over plastic. I don't know what I. I don't even know what I'm making when I start upon them. Nylon hair wefts in one hand and acrylic paint in the other, frantically trying to create a doll I can call my own. I'm a little girl sitting with scissors and ill intent, the insatiable hunger for attention and praise that bubbles up when a child's joy or judgment isn't enough for herself. Shaking hands and tunnel vision imagination collide to create so many mistakes of craftsmanship. I step on stage, white-knuckling a broken Barbie and my mouth is a garbage bag, stowing away all my little mistakes. It opens to reveal eyes missing. Half mohawks, marker tattoos and ripped doll clothes, clumsy creations half thought out and executed with imperfect technique. None of them are my favorite. None of them are perfect in my image. But some are salvaged by people who love them more. They smile and tell me my poetry is good, that I was good tonight, for remaking these imperfect things which they found themselves in. Perhaps they're just polite. Perhaps they truly mean it. But among the audience is someone dissatisfied, and of course, I am that audience member. With a microscope to my clunky wordplay, the moments of unfulfilled potential and crooked stitches on tiny seams. What good is the art I make if it does not give me personal joy? I see so many favorites in other people's dolls. Vibrancy that I covet, humor that I delight in. Their demands for compassion move me to tears, and mine feel so small by the comparison. These people can be themselves, but I, if I cannot be perfect, then neither can my dolls. And if my dolls are not perfect, I am not good. My fingers shake with every stitch, the worth of my being loaded in every centimeter of thread. Each uneven line is more existence for how valueless my existence is. I wish I was someone better. I wish these crafting hands held vision and stability. I covet creations that are not mine. They don't carry my mistakes. Children don't care about mistakes. They play with dolls because they're fun, because they love them, because they feel fulfillment and the simple pleasure of finding themselves in fantasy. The more I make these dolls, the closer they get to what I hope for. And I can release them from the plastic prison of my drafts folder You're welcome to collect them in your toy chest, hear your favorite doll talk to you on a bad day and think, maybe someone else gets it. If you want them, they're your toys now. I hope you like them.
1: Lottie, welcome to The Poets. Thank you for being here. Thank you. That was a really good set. Um, I have a lot of questions about the set, but I will start with one more about poetry in general for you. Um, specifically about your name, mm-hmm. Lottie Dammit. Okay. It's a yeah. pseudonym. You're taking on a name. I wonder if when you get on stage, do you take on a stage personality along with that?
0: Um, I try not to actually. Um for me, poetry is like a way to get in touch with my truest self. I already have a pretty bad problem of like acting like a bit of a cartoon character in my everyday life. It's it's sort of a behavior that was born out of having a dad who wasn't around a lot. And uh, whenever he would come into town, I would try and get his attention by making him laugh um, mm. and like sort of pantomiming characters. So it's something that stuck with me in adulthood and I'm trying to unlearn. So. Whenever I come up on stage, even though I'm using a pseudonym, I am genuinely trying to express my most authentic self.
1: You're trying... What part of it are you trying to unlearn the...
0: Just sort of... It's hard to describe, but it's just acting, like exaggerating my natural mannerisms, Mm. you know?
1: I think so. That sounds like it would be incredibly hard to disentangle.
0: Yeah, because, you know, when you learn how to exaggerate certain parts of yourself and hide others, even if uh, parts of the bits you're exaggerating are not exactly real, you still sort of confuse them for who you actually are, if that makes sense. I think so. <laughs> so it, yeah,
1: how long have you been doing that? How long have you been sort of finding yourself through performance?
0: I think last summer. That was the point where I stopped trying to sound fancy. and mm. was actually genuinely trying to express things I was actively feeling in order to make them, like, into art that I could share with people and maybe figure out what was going on with me, you
1: know? Okay. So were you... When did you start performing? Were you performing before that and then decided that you wanted to be be more genuine with it or...?
0: Yeah. Basically, uh, the way that I came to the Merck was... Uh, by supporting a friend of mine who was already a very good poet and had only just decided that he wanted to share his work. Uh, That would be Nico. He's been on the podcast Mm. before. Hell yeah. Um, I think about the second or third time we went there, I was two margaritas in and decided, I'm going to write a poem alluding to my sexual assault. So uh, that was the point where I started performing. And as I started coming more regularly, I started to perform more regularly.
1: Wow. And then you got into the slam scene. I know I've seen you do slam. Is that a different process for you or is it, what is the difference for you? Is there a difference?
0: Oh yeah. Um, creating in general is basically just like playing with whatever comes to mind when it comes to the slam. That's like coming to a fight (laughs) in the sense Uh, that you are refining what you already have in order to be as good as possible. It's like, um, I don't want it to be as, it's not as violent as it sounds, but it feels like loading bullets into a chamber, you know?
1: Can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, like when you make a poem and you practice it for a while and you edit it for a while and after some time spent with it, it feels very good to Mm. a point where it's just like, there's no way that anybody could not like this. Mm. With a new poem, it'll feel fresh in the moment and definitely it'll have its appeal but after a while it'll lose its shine a bit and you feel like you have to sort of refine it or else it'll just be you know clay just sitting there
1: yeah you sort of lose interest in it yeah exactly
0: especially if it's not relevant to your life as much as it used to be
1: yeah do you ever find old poems you've written and like not even remember the circumstances or the act of writing it
0: oh my gosh yes um there there was an entire month of I'm pretty sure it was poetry writing month where I try my best to just throw whatever I could onto the paper and there were like two or three lines just like in my notion drafts uh tied to a certain date I'm just like what the hell was I thinking
1: (laughs) do you remember what they were (laughs) nope
0: not even a little bit (laughs) But on the other hand, there's, like, a couple where I wrote them down, like, at the table and were actively impressed with myself. And I can't find them anymore because, like, they're physical copies. There's a whole rabbits poem that I made about, like, anxiety and being a woman and sort of feeling persecuted and stuff. And it's just, like, I'm never going to see that poem again. Yeah.
1: And, yeah, you can try and capture it, but it will never be.
0: Exactly. It's it's just, like, dust in the wind now.
1: Wow. Hey, that's beautiful in its own way. <laughs> So you sort of hinted at maybe not humor specifically. Your your poetry has humor in it, genuinely funny yeah. humor, which is ballsy. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of confidence to like try and be funny in poetry. Is that how conscious is that? Or is that just kinda natural in how you write?
0: Half and half. Okay. Um I think when it comes to uh really uncomfortable subjects it can be compulsive for me to throw it in there just to kind of soften how intense it feels to me. But mm-hmm. I've never sort of considered the humor to be ballsy. It almost feels like um, its its presence in a poem can be somewhat of an apology. Uh, in the sense that I know I'm sharing these things that can be incredibly personal, maybe uncomfortable for people to listen mm. to. And so throwing the joke in there is sort of like a tension breaker. So I'm just like, hey, I get it. This is not very fun to have uh, me coming up here and sort of putting you in this experience of uh, living with OCD. So, hey, here's this joke I wrote. Woo-hoo.
1: See, I think. I think people are showing up for that. I think they're showing up for those genuine experiences. Hmm. And I think the humor just sweetens it, but that's interesting that perspective on it.
0: Definitely. Uh, It's very new for me to arrive in a community where vulnerability in all of its aspects uh, is very celebrated. Um, I am a very, I was a very perpetually online person ever since I got a computer. And even when, uh, mental health is very actively talked about. Uh, And even when the vulnerability appears to be championed, it feels very much like being honest and being sort of overly open can be an invitation for people to sort of scrutinize you Mm. and maybe even call you a bit cringe and whatever. It's, It's something that I've kind of struggled with. This idea that once you put yourself out there, that's forever because it's the internet and that can translate into real life Uh, wondering who remembers that uh, embarrassing moment I had such and so uh, days ago you know
1: I do know yes that's something that I definitely had to struggle with myself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's interesting to think of that in terms of poetry because I I don't know this isn't about me this is your (laughs) but uh,
0: this is a conversation though. yes
1: (laughs) when I I was self-conscious when I started going on stage, but it was not in the way I used to be self-conscious about things. Like Mm. in school, I would be self-conscious all day, every day about like people just thinking people were looking at me, you know, or just thinking about me. Once I got on stage, it was almost like I could just ignore the fact that there were other people in the room yeah it took a bit to get used to it like I, I remember the first time I went I was shaking like I had the mic in hand and I was shaking really <laughs> really bad so it definitely took some getting used to but it was never um there was a sense of abandon in it it was like I'm gonna get on stage like it or not yeah but here's my five minutes
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's incredibly freeing um in the sense that once you're up there, you have no choice but to just let loose. It's like BDSM in a way. Like once you're tied up, you just have to accept it. Damn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I'm gonna be thinking about BDSM next time I'm at the Merc.
0: No. <laughs> but actually, yeah.
1: yeah. Um there's a few things I pulled out that that stuck out to me in the poems that you read. I can't remember which ones they came from, but mm-hmm. um one was oh, if this was in soul surveillance state, I'm pretty sure. The parts of me that aren't meant for others or the parts of me not meant for others. Mm. Aren't those the best parts?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I've come to really appreciate that. The fact that I will have these parts of me that will like sort of like shock and sort of maybe disgust people like when they are revealed and maybe somebody will just be like, no, no, keep going, keep going. And uh, it's really wonderful to sort of see who who comes along for the ride.
1: Yeah. That's a fun ride to go on. Holy shit. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the, you're going to find somebody like that, you know, at the Merc, you're going to find kindred spirits at the Merc because it's all misfits, you know, coming together.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There are people who have shared such hardcore experiences and some people who got actively booed down, um, uh, that I wish would come back because, uh, I have a friend who, like, has, like, gone back and talked to people after they were told to leave. Uh, this is this happens so very rarely, maybe mm-hmm. once a year, but he will talk to them and, like, it will expand his experience and he'll tell me about it, like, how somebody who uh, basically wrote this poem that very much so shocked people was trying to just feel something and sort of process a very hardcore experience they went through and it makes me pretty sad. There was another person who came and talked about their experience with dissociative identity disorder. And I really felt for them. But then the second they got off stage, they kind of like ran out and it made me pretty sad. Mm. It I don't know.
1: That must have been you know you wonder you wonder about the days leading up to that or the hours leading up to that. Yeah. That could have been that could have been their one out of comfort zone experience in like months, you know?
0: Absolutely, They're, they wrote two poems like talking about it and it it made me realize um, that a lot of people who come here just want to be seen, who are really craving community and may deny themselves that because maybe they have that sort of fear of judgment that they learned either in real life or online yeah. in a way that Will perpetually inform how they engage. It's, it's. I don't know. I think about that a lot.
1: It's, yeah. I mean, that is. You're, you're right that it's incredibly rare that anything other than just claps will, will greet a, a poet on stage. It, it is interesting to think about those edge cases, though, mm-hmm. because they like formulated a plan to go speak at an open mic poetry event, and it's like it feels like that's a very distinct type of person who even has that thought cross their mind. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it means.
0: Mm. It's sort of interesting to think about. And I don't know, just the fact that people can go up there and uh, be honest and sort of try to make something they really struggle with into art is mm. has become something that I've really come to value. Whenever I talk to somebody uh, who likes my work, I. Make it a point to like chant at them, peer pressure, peer pressure, peer pressure, because I want them to share their pieces as well.
1: Hell yeah. This kind of gets into the vibe of dolls a little bit. Yeah. Um, The line, I don't, I don't think I got this line perfectly right, but you said something like remaking imperfect things for others to find themselves in. Exactly. How true is that when you're writing poetry?
0: It's always true. Um, I have pretty high standards for myself as I think most artists do. And there are, there have been a lot of poems where I, I stay up upstage and, uh, it doesn't feel as good as I could have made it, but people will still see me after the show and just be like, thank you for mm. saying that, uh, you did a good tonight. I laughed, I cried or whatever. And, uh, it's it's a little bit of a relief more and more whenever I hear somebody say that. Mm. At first I was very averse to accepting compliments from people. Um, there's another open mic I go to where at one point I so thoroughly rejected a compliment that the the two girls who were talking to me kind of took a step back because they were very taken aback by my mm. reaction. And it kind of made me realize uh, how strange it was for me to take my own insecurities out on people who genuinely like my stuff
1: damn that's a that's a hard way of putting it but it's the truth taking insecurities out yeah i think i think anybody who's gone on stage can resonate with that
0: yeah like doing that self-effacing sort of things sort of thing um and not recognizing that the gap between your artistic hopes and your artistic execution is not seen by the people who enjoy your work it's it's something that it can mm-hmm. be sobering and humbling to to process
1: so is is the answer just get over it and accept compliments yes exactly <laughs>
0: like okay get over yourself you're not like allen ginsberg it's going to be fine you're uh, fine
1: <laughs> uh so if anybody I mean, obviously mostly poets will listen to this, but if anybody's listening to it and has not gone on stage, has never shared anything at an open mic, what what advice would you give to them? What would you say?
0: Um, those are your dues. So <laughs> I mean, not to be crass or like um badass about it or whatever, but
1: <laughs> You but, are badass though.
0: Well, thank you. But yeah, it's it's like when you first draw and the only thing that you can draw is a stick figure when all you wanted to do was just recreate Dragon Ball Z. Like, you know that there is a gap between your artistic talents and your artistic ambitions in order to ever meet, make that gap sort of close, you're going to have to recognize your current skill level and say, I'm going to keep on going Mm -hmm. uh, until I get there. The the journey starts like for the first single step. You get what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Yes. Every project, every task, every whatever hobby starts out shit. Exactly. Even if you start out like pretty good, you're going to get better. And you're going to look back at the beginning and be like, wow, that was shit.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: compared to where I'm at now. So you just got to start.
0: Yeah. I peaked so hard when I said that, but like it made me excited <laughs> to say that. Yeah. I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think this, I also wrote this down while I was listening to Doll's Uh, Maybe it's a dumb question, but...
0: Dumb questions are always welcome.
1: Poetry, there was something in there about poetry being more of a struggle, not something that brings you joy. So my question is, what are some things that bring you joy?
0: Um, Poetry is definitely something that does give me peace and happiness. Um, When I say, uh, what good is the art I make if it does not give me personal joy? Mm. It's more of reckoning with that um, struggle between skill and ambition. Um, Sort of looking back at your art and thinking, damn it, it's not good enough yet. Mm. So it's not necessarily that poetry doesn't give me joy. It's more that sometimes I'll look at it and say, damn, that's dog water.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But I will say stuff that gives me joy is being able to participate in the community and get to know people and uh, enjoy the process of making art together. Uh, I didn't realize how badly that was missing from my life until I got here. There was, a, there was a, an open mic at Ophelia's Electric Soapbox and uh, practically everybody I've ever met uh, had been there, had been at the Merck and then he showed up there. And I looked around the room and I recognized like, holy shit, I know like mm-hmm. 80 to 85% of the people here and their names and their stories. Mm-hmm. I've never felt that before.
1: It's a real community. Yeah, it really is. Well, Lottie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Um, Tell people where they can find you, where they can find more of you.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, I have an Instagram called Lottie. Damn it. Just one word. Uh, you will not see my poetry on there. I have a single painting that I took six months to complete, but I promise I will try and put something else on there. Cool. And, uh, You can just find me in real life.
1: Hell yeah. Fridays and Sundays at the Merck.
0: Exactly.
1: Well, cheers. Thanks again for being here.
0: Cheers. Thank you. Bye, everyone. See ya.